Holiday season is upon us. Would you believe it? We celebrated Remembrance Day and stuff like that last week. This week we get to celebrate DBT, Trino 364, and a whole bunch of other cool stuff in the Trino Community Broadcast 30. And then next week, Black Friday and more craziness towards Christmas, <laughs> as you all know. Black, so Black Friday, not Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thanksgiving and Black Friday, it's all the same. It depends on who, <laughs> who you talk to, what they're celebrating. So we are in the action Today, we have two great guests, Chemek and Jose, are joining us to talk about DBT and uh, the DBT Tree New Plugin and a whole bunch of cool stuff. So let's roll right into it, Brian. Yeah, so um, so I'm really interested uh, to, on the guests we have today. So Jose uh, is going to be uh, talking, actually, at the Coalesce event uh, coming up. Uh, and we, I think uh, it was episode 21, um, we, we talked with uh, some of the fine folks at, uh, at DBT Labs. And we were kind of talking about this DBT plus Trino session. And this ended up uh, getting a lot of attention because uh, actually it's becoming this super, super uh, common uh, uh, type of pattern that we're, we're seeing in the wild, uh, people using DBT plus, plus uh, Trino together. And so what's even more interesting, uh, this got me in touch with uh, Jose, uh, uh, Amy, Amy specifically the uh, uh, solutions architect from DBT Labs, got me in touch with Jose, and I found out that, uh, Jose, you're, you're using this uh, um, DBT as well as um, Trino to kind of enable you all at TalkDesk to actually um, realize a, a bit of this data mesh uh, this data mesh architecture craze. Um, this is a lot of things we're talking about at Starburst, but it's always really interesting to see uh, companies and how they're adapting it and how they're taking the technology and tools to, to integrate that. So welcome on the show. I'm really excited to dive into that. Thank you. Excited to be here. Awesome. And Shemek, uh, you are uh, insider to that whole Starburst, Starburst uh, uh, crew, and you know we we are thinking a lot about how do we, uh, you know, how does data mesh work? What are the right ways to adhere to those uh, principles that Jamak uh, uh, Degani has has set out? And so um, we we brought you along uh, to kind of give this kind of software engineer viewpoint of of this and kind of insider to to try to see like what's the actual you know, uh, effects that we as software engineers are going to, to face and see as time goes on. So really uh, excited to have you here as well. Thank you very much. Very excited to be here. So um, without further ado, let's let's go. Before we hop right into uh, the news, let's uh, do our, uh, our typical uh, Starburst ad, and we'll be right back after this, uh, this ad, please. I'm Colleen Tarto. I am the Director of Engineering on Starburst Galaxy. What is it actually offering? So, I mean, I, I think this kind of like builds on some of the open source Trino stuff, but yep. is it doing a lot more? Uh, what what kind of pains is it solving? Could you kind of uh, uh, give us a little bit of insight on, on what actual pain this is going to be uh, uh, alleviating? Yeah, absolutely. And so to, to think about that, I always like to go back and think about what's the difference between Starburst Enterprise and Trino, right? And so I always like to think of Starburst Enterprise as the cool older sibling to Trino. It's a little bit more mature, a little cooler. It's got a, it's got a car. It's got yeah. some cool stuff going on, leather jacket, you know. Um, and Trino is awesome in its own right, don't get me wrong, but Starburst Enterprise is just better and a bit more grown up. And specifically what that means to me is that with Enterprise, you get more. You get more functionality, faster performance, more connectors, more security, better management, 
better integration into the ecosystem of tools that you already use today, data governance, integration, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what really speaks volumes to me is that when you use Starburst Enterprise, you get Starburst, right? You get best-in-class support from the folks who work for us, and they know Trino best because they created Trino, and they're con continuing to contribute to Trino. Um, but Starburst Galaxy takes that to a whole other level, right? So one of the pain points is installing, managing, maintaining, monitoring Starburst Enterprise. And so Starburst Galaxy alleviates all that, right? So it's um, a fully managed service. It's Starburst Enterprise as a managed service and more. And one last question. As yeah. uh going to be any free offerings coming up anytime soon. Is that on the road? Absolutely. We're building out, we've got a free trial. Um, so if you're interested, absolutely reach out to us. We are very excited about it. Um, and then we're talking about sort of a free tier. So like being able to just play around with it in your own environment and see what's what. We'll keep you all uh, up to date on when you can start to play around with Galaxy and Trino uh, for free for just a little bit and uh, get to know this incredible service called Starburst Galaxy. Thank you so much, Colleen. Thank you. All right. Well, before we hop right into uh, all of our uh, concept of the week, uh, Manfred, there has been a release that has gone out since then. Do you want to tell us about the release 264? Actually, before you go into that, my bad. Uh, we, we also want to uh, quickly tell everybody that if you missed Trino Summit 2021, which was uh, near the end of October um, uh, last year, uh, uh, what was it two weeks ago now? Um, so no worries. Uh, we actually just have all of that uh, up and available for free. It's going to be in the show notes for today's uh, uh, show. And um, I'll also make sure to add it in the YouTube video because it takes a while for these show notes sometimes to, to actually get merged in. So if uh, I, I will add it in the YouTube uh, comment section by the time this uh, show ends so that if you want to go check out uh, all the fantastic and cool talks from DoorDash, from we had, uh, who, who else was on there? Uh, DoorDash, we had Netflix, we had uh, talking about like caching systems, we had EA talking about uh, a lot of really cool ways that they have um, set up these kind of more ephemeral um, Trino clusters and they have basically not uh, any like long-standing Trino clusters. So really cool to hear about their architecture and how they basically set up a lot of their stuff as a service, kind of sim similar to, uh, you know, kind of some of the things that you strive for on data mesh. They aren't particularly trying to be a data mesh, but uh, they, they happen to have one of those uh, principles already uh, checked off the box. So really interesting to hear about those types of uh, architectures coming up organically, even without explicitly trying to fall into that uh, data mesh category. Um, so definitely check those out. We have all the slides listed there, uh, as well as the, uh, the videos. And, uh, if you wanted to see Mr. Commander Bun Bun over there, uh, rocking out to ACDC's back, black and back and black, uh, definitely check that out as well. Um, so, uh, so now I will tee you up, uh, Manfred, I'm going to actually remove the, uh, the banner over your head so that people yeah. can see your wonderful face and tell us about, uh, release 364. Yeah, so last time we um, talked about 364 a little bit already, but it's always interesting uh, what different spin Martin gives it on on what he what he finds as the highlights. And in the end, the release came out like three days or so after we had our Trino community broadcast. So we were pretty close. But um, Martin wanted to mention that the support for dynamic filtering in the Iceberg connector is there. Uh, that's also just, it feels like it's just one of the changes in the Iceberg Connect. If you look at the release notes yourself, you'll see 
there's a lot of changes on the iceberg connector and it has tremendous development going on on it. Same as the Hive connector, actually. Um, their uh, performance improvements when clearing small files were there. Uh, and that, again, affects the iceberg connector as well as the Hive connector. And uh, in the Hive connector, also, we have a optimized procedure implemented now that can make those small files bigger, which is super awesome because many small files are much slower to read. So you can sort of compact that those files to fewer larger files directly from Trino, which makes it much better to query them. Um, the procedure to is, is now in the Hive tables. Cassandra uh, connector got the UID type implemented. So that's a universal identifier. Um, mapping to the Trino UUID. So that's that's sometimes uh, very useful, specifically when you have like tables, obviously, that use that type. Uh, the memsql date time and timestamp data types were also added as mapping uh, memsql slash uh, single store. So for users of that system, very useful to have that. Not sure. I'm not sure which, which feature you just mentioned that Abner really liked, but uh, he said nice to one of these things that you just mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that, that depends on what he uses, but yeah, the, yeah. The, all of them are pretty, pretty useful features. Uh, nice. One thing that I really liked um, that's sort of just uh, getting started is the alter materialized view statement. Remember, yeah. the materialized view support is in the Iceberg connector. In yeah. Starburst Enterprise, you also have it on the Hive connector. And now you can rename a materialized view. So yeah. that's there was a there was a huge amount of actual like iceberg uh, uh, optimizations. Uh, they're like all these little tweaks and things that are like uh, niche use cases, but they're like, you know, uh, it's it's these types of things that makes the connector a lot more resilient. So I was really excited to see there was actually a huge uh, amount of uh, iceberg optimizations, including support for this that helps the iceberg connector uh, uh, be able to use some of this functionality with materialized view. Yeah, specifically on the materialized view, there's more to come. So at the moment, you know, a materialized view is sort of defined by a few things. First, there's a name for it. That's yeah. what you query things after. And then there's the underlying SQL statement on, on where the hell to get the data from that's stored in the materialized view. And we will, uh, we are working on an ultra-materialized view statement that allows you to basically change the SQL that defines it, which is obviously quite a big thing because it needs to re-get re all the storage tables and uh, that kind of work. So that's happening. And um, then the third thing is that uh, the materialized view is defined by a bunch of properties in the width statement that define like storage format and whatever, like a whole bunch of parameters. And we are working towards also with alter materialized view being able to change those. So um, more stuff to come. This is the first one. Now you can rename it. <laughs> nice. Uh, in general, also there's a whole bunch of performance improvements across various things in the core engine for various different SQL statements. Uh, read on that uh, in the in the release notes directly. And then one thing that always uh, makes uh, Brian happy is improvement on the Elasticsearch connector. But it, when there's unsupported types, it doesn't any fail any longer. It just pumps things to as JSON types. So that's, that's always good, right? Like at least yep. you get something back instead of just going, well, that doesn't work. Yeah, there was a lot of trial and error in the Elasticsearch connector before. If you if you like, so some people on the Elasticsearch side they don't really have those strict schemas, and there's just no way for us to handle that before. Now we just say, okay, we don't know how to manage that. The fact that these two things are totally different, let's just automatically, you know, or, or particularly this is something that we don't know how to convert into something into Trino 
uh, Trino land. Like, let's just make that a JSON uh, uh, string blob and return it back to you so that you can figure out how to parse it um, ad hoc. That's right. And then on those small file fixes, there were also other fixes related to those files, specifically on the Parquet and Avro files that are often used in the Hive connector. Nice. And then last but not least, our web UI that is a bit of a like neglected child, so to speak, a little bit. It's not not doesn't get too much changes. Did get an improvement um, specifically for queries that have very long SQL text, like the statement is very long. Um, nice. We added some performance improvement so that doesn't uh, take so long. Awesome. So, and and given that it's uh, already uh, like what seventeen days ago that this release was allowed was out, I'm thinking three sixty five isn't too far away. So I'm very sure that by the next episode we will have a three sixty five shift as well. Yeah, uh, one thing I wanted to uh, to quickly point out before we hop right into concepts, um, unless you were not done with, uh, were, are we done it. with release? Okay, cool. <laughs> Just I was like, all right, he seems done. Um, <laughs> uh, so. The uh, well, I wanted to point out some milestones that we we just hit in the Trino community. So we have uh, um, basically 5,500 Slack members as of this morning. Um, so really, really super excited about that. The Slack, uh, our Slack channel is is growing so rapidly, and uh, you know it's it's pretty much getting to where I don't know every two weeks we have another hundred uh, members to that. So uh, really excited about that um, that that. Uh, level of growth and again you know super huge resource please uh, join our slack channel if um, you know if you if you're a user that needs help or if you're developing and you want to get more involved in the community slack is such a huge uh, um, it's it's such a huge uh, uh, resource for a lot of our community members um, now we with uh, Trino community broadcast here as well as some other uh, meetups and things that we've been ha uh, uh, showcasing in the community on the YouTube channel uh, we I think earlier this year we were we're under two, I think we're like around a hundred something uh, um, subscribers. And now we just hit 600 subscribers. So maybe we'll yes. make that 700 before the end of the year and uh, uh, at least go well over 500 uh, new subscribers this year. Well, with uh, guests like Jose and Chemek, I'm sure we'll get to 600. I think so. Easily. Totally. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, definitely uh, 3,000 followers now on Twitter. Um, so, you know, uh, really exciting to, to see that uh, everybody in the Twitter, uh, Twitter sphere is also uh, jumping on the Trino bandwagon. And then uh, my favorite stat of, of all is that we are well over 25,000 commits, uh, which more than doubles the amount of work uh, that, uh, you know, has gone into PrestoDB since the split back in 2019. Uh, so really fantastic work to all of you in the Trino community. Uh, thank you so much for your contribution. Contributions. Thank you so much for being involved and uh, you know being a part of what is uh, this amazing thing we call Trino. So I uh, just wanted to uh, uh, start that out and uh, really give that shout out. Uh, you know, big thumbs up to the uh, Trino community, including those of you like Jose and Shemek. <laughs> so, all right. Well, without any further ado, let's get into the meat and potatoes of the show. Let's go to the concept of the week. All right. So this uh, week's concept of the week, uh, we are labeling it Trino and DBT, uh, a hot data mesh. And so um, there's a couple of things going on with this title. Uh, there's a play on words with a uh, hot mess. Uh, if those of you that are not fluent in the uh, in that uh, idiom, and then uh, we're you know obviously mixing that with data mesh. And then uh, we're also talking you know about how Trino and DBT mesh together super well and in a super hot uh, pattern. So as we mentioned before, this is 
to uh, be something that at first I was just basically doing this episode, I don't know, Trino DBT, just to make sure people knew that Trino and DBT were not competition because that was coming up every once in a while. And I think once that got cleared out, like there was just like a whole bunch of people that surfaced and said, hey, no, we're using it them together. They're these super complementary technologies. And it's it's amazing how, how well they work together because Trino essentially enables you to federate over multiple data sources, which is something you can't really do in dbt. But then dbt gives you this way to kind of uh, develop this infrastructure, which Jose is going to give us a lot more insight into and in talking about how they're doing this at TalkDesk. And so it's like the the they kind of like uh, just make this uh, if you want to use Trino as one of those tools that help you, uh, you know, set up your your kind of SQL as infrastructure, uh, making things more modular and testable, uh, you know, th that's going to be a pattern that we see uh, over and over again. And then particularly, you know, how do these two technologies play in the world of this uh, data mesh architecture? So really excited to see this. Uh, Jose, I'm going to uh, pass it over to your, your, you also have the same setup over here, but I just wanted to pass it over to you. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what's going on at TalkDesk? Like what, what services do you all provide? And how did that kind of get you into this world of using Trino, DBT, and, and trying to aim for this uh, uh, data mesh architecture? Um, yeah, uh, our core business is uh, contact center as a service, or what we like to call a C-cache. Mm -hmm. uh, mainly any business that needs uh, to have support for their clients, uh, we are there for them. Uh, but this means that uh, we have many calls, we have many events, many actions that are occurring. It's not just not to pick up the phone and uh, hang up. Uh, what does this mean is that we... Um, mainly try and produce an event for every action. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> one of the main topics that uh, Trin or DBT and Data Mesh is becomes very re relevant for us is that we have seen an increase in the number of events, in number of products. Uh, and Data Mesh has been um, the thing that ties, uh, ties it all together and uh, for us to try and scale up with the needs of the clients and not be uh, Hold down by the number of events. Yeah. So tell tell us about that scale. You, we have this little, uh, uh, you know, kind of our, 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 a diagram here. You know, kind of talking about your, the scale that you all are seeing there. Uh, yeah. Uh, I can uh, go a bit below, uh, but in this case, uh, as I was saying, that uh, we have many events. Uh, in our case, uh, for example, we have a call that has started. This is one event. Uh, then uh, the agent they actually picks up the call to ask what's occurring, and that's another event. Uh, many other events can occur if uh, we try and buy some some product uh, or not. And at the end, uh, if everything is okay, hopefully, um, the call finishes. And uh, what happens is that um, in this case, we have seen a. <laughs> An, an increase of the throughput of the events. Uh, we have seen a 2x in the event types from uh, 2017 to, uh, to the current year. And the events itself I have seen um, have been many, uh, very different. They, uh, the events that were our top 10 in 2017 are not the same as today. And to complicate uh, this more, we have uh, come to the point where uh, we are releasing um, more and more products, and uh, at, uh, we have seen uh, in 20 weeks, 20 new products, and um, the analytics team, uh, 
just wasn't able to cope with all of this. Yeah. And, uh, I'm kind of yeah. curious on that too. How, like, you know, I know that you don't probably don't touch all of these products yourself, but like, I'm wondering how, uh, how, how, are they are they pretty similar in terms of the data model that backs them, or is there a lot of overlap, or is it are they all like their own unique little uh, uh, snowflake kind of thing? Um, they can be completely different. It can okay. be uh, it can be the management of the agents uh, yeah. when someone is going to work or not, and try to do this kind of management. It can be about the calls itself uh, or to do the routing because um, the agent is. Uh, the agent isn't able to resolve the problem, so it goes to another agent, and so on and so on. That's another. Pro it can be another product, so it can be really anything. And we try to have a, um, a modular uh, uh, way of working, so that each team is able to be very lean and uh, work for themselves and create their own uh, data models and uh, do everything in their own way. We try to bring best practices, but in terms of data models, it can really be anything. It can be any event type, can have uh, any kind of uh, schema. Do you, do you find yourselves uh, modeling kind of uh, almost the same thing, but like, you know, it's there's just enough differences on this product versus that product that you, you model, let's say, I, I don't know, a call and there's, you know, like, maybe two types of calls. One call is the call in the context of this team or this product versus the call in the concept of this uh, other team or product. Like, is is there a lot of these overlap ones or do you try to do your best at uh, sharing the, the, the same type of models? Um, is that making sense? Uh, it can make some sense in the terms that um, we try to have some um, middle point uh, as an example we can have um, the uh, called as an interaction and that interaction is unique between data sets and mm -hmm. between the service and in this way we are able to um, do analysis between the multiple systems and be able to okay. uh, join uh, everything together um, in that sense uh, we try to uh, standard uh, create a standard for all of this okay um, but yeah, uh, mainly uh, each product uh, as a um, product launch and we need to do some uh, kind of different analysis. Uh, we need to be able to say if uh, it, it has uh, some success or if the clients aren't liking it, if it increases the lag of the system or not. Uh, and all of these, um, or most of these, uh, we can uh, relate it from the events that we produce. Um, so yeah, in, in terms of the scale, uh, scalability, this was the main issue that we were seeing. Um, and that, up, to, up to that point, we had a centralized um, data warehouse. We had a single team. Uh, it was mainly, I'd say five, six members. So it was really small. And uh, what we had, were doing is something that uh, I'd say most of the DBT users have currently, that is, um, a main data warehouse, in our case, it was um, Redshift. We were doing some pipelining of the data that was there, and we were uh, bringing the data using Spark, um, Apache Spark, to bring all the events into the data warehouse. And finally, we were uh, getting the data from different databases or external services like uh, Salesforce and uh, Zwar to using 5 to the data warehouse. Uh, 
but the problem that we were seeing here was that, uh, um, as I was saying um, before, we were seeing more and more product launches and before a small team uh, up to a certain point it was working up until not. Uh, we were using um, Jira uh, for the, our tickets, for our requests. And uh, at some point we were just seeing the, the number of tickets increase and uh, actually some uh, clients were not even requesting data because they knew that uh, if a request was going to take them uh, six months, it was uh, already too late. So, so these uh, were kind of like the indicators that you're saying, like the, you were you saw something was wrong, and you're you're thinking, how do we? Uh, so, is, is there anything else outside of just ticket backlog raising up and people? Uh, I would say this is the the main point, uh, okay. the one that was more visible. Um, uh, we were getting some uh, complaints by um, the, the users, our internal users, uh, anyone at the company that wanted to get get some new insights. Um, because uh, sometimes uh, even adding a, a new column would take some months because we had a backlog uh, that we needed to tackle before it. And uh, one of the worst things that uh, happens in, the, our, in our area in the data analysis is that Sometimes if the system doesn't work, um, we get an error and we need to fix it. We get a bug and we have we can uh, fix it as soon as possible. But in the case of the data analysis, the worst that can happen and we are uh, we can't have anything visible to it is that uh, some client decides to take some action without uh, data and they just give up on the, some data analysis and they do um, by feeling. Um, and uh, we needed to resolve this. So at this, at uh, to this point, we were trying to find some um, some ways of fixing this. And uh, we are were also starting to create a new product. So that was um, we decided that the data itself would be uh, transparent and would be visible and queryable by the clients. Uh, it's not actually on the show notes, but. Um, what what changed everything? What uh, made us uh, change the whole architecture was that uh, we decided to create a data product uh, for the ones that um, uh, don't know data mesh. Uh, the data mesh is um, a term that defines some points uh, between creating a of a data product, making sure that the data is not an afterthought. It's one of the more selling points. Um, and we started from here. And what happened is that the same time that uh, we were building our new data product, we also got to see the data mesh uh, article that was presented by Jemek. Uh, and she laid uh, some uh, other principles that we were building at the same time. So it was um, more like a coincidence and everything just resonated uh, just to show how uh, some of the principles of the data mesh can be really logic and simple. Uh, and what happened was that we decided to have a product between uh, for the um, for the clients to be able to get their live data. So to know uh, at the same time, uh, the current time, how many calls there were occurring, uh, the hangups, uh, the, um, and for this, we needed to have really fast data 
and uh, Redshift wasn't uh, going to to live up to this. We were. So, so Jose, wh who who kind of made this decision? Like, uh, or once you kind of noticed that uh, you know data mesh was this kind of interesting concept that was aligning a lot with what you your initiatives were. Was this uh, someone in management or or one of the main lead architects, or was it you? Or you know, there, you had a small team of five, so I, I imagine convincing people to change the entire architecture was probably not as difficult as it can be in other companies. So I was just kind of, I, I want to uh, just pause you at a real point from the technology standpoint and say, you know, I think one of the biggest things that holds people back from data mesh is usually uh, a political reason or kind of a social reason. And and sometimes it's really difficult because things have already scaled up to some degree. Um, you guys are, are, we're definitely scaling up uh, a lot already dealing with, you know, you know, tens of, of, of maybe closer getting close to hundreds of projects, uh, products already. And so, you know, making that final decision or, or getting buy-in from everybody, uh, how, what was that process like real quick before we just move ahead on the technology point? Um, I can give my insights because I wasn't there when they decided to, um, uh, to go with uh, uh, Trino Press at the time, okay. Uh, but what occurred was mainly because uh, we had different uh, uh, necessities. We had different use cases. In this case, we needed to have the real time and at the same time have um, historical data sets, and they just weren't. Uh, we just weren't able to have all of these in the same um, in the same um, data warehouse. So. Um, the logic way to go was to have something that would able to glue everything together um, so that we would be able to get this. And uh, uh, frankly, at the time, uh, PressODB and uh, Arduino just were the best offer uh, because it, they were the only technology at the time that uh, was able, I would say the only one, that proposed to separate um, the... Um, the power, uh, the powering, the um, to how to run the queries, the processing, uh, the processing part from the storage part. Um, we had something like Redshift that was able to use Amazon Glue, and um, and we were um, studying this. But uh, what we found was that uh, Trino uh, was just uh, the best way for us to, without uh, marrying into a technology, that was something that was occurring quite frequently. Um, that because if we were at Redshift, we would need to be um, to do, ev do everything at Redshift. And with Trino, we were just able to okay, we have some data on Redshift, but we can have also data on um, a Cassandra database uh, and just query the data uh, from the different. Um, catalogs depending on our needs and uh, it was just actually the best way to work um, and sell the thing that we, we just don't need to move everything to Trino. We can still uh, run our ETLs, our data pipelines processes um, on the, uh, the databases that we have. We yeah. currently still uh, are using Redshift uh, for, uh, for example, yeah. but uh, we need to have uh, to have the IVE connector and that uh, MariaDB uh, yeah. and other databases and Presto and Trino were the best. 
So was but, it pretty unanimous when, when you know, you, you had all these issues just sitting there, you like staring you in the face and it, was it just like obvious that to everybody or, or there was like no convincing? Cause that's, that's usually the, the hard part, right? Is like, you're, you're trying to kind of get everybody on the same page and, and uh, agreeing to, you know, Hey, we're going to move to Trino. We're going to move to using DBT to modularize this. We're going to move to this paradigm that we're going to call data mesh and try to adhere to some of these new principles. Like sometimes that can be a, a huge undertaking. And then just depending on the team, how relationships are on that team that can actually, you know, have a lot of impact on, on to making a move like that. Uh, don't you think it's kind of a light touch change though? Like uh, in, in the, in the, because like how was, how you say, was say, uh, saying, Trino can query the existing database and it can query other databases. So it's kind of a light touch change. You don't have to throw things away. You kind of add Trino and that gives you the power to work with the old data warehouse and with the other, with whatever new one. So you can sort of like, it's like, like Jose was saying nicely also, it's kind of like a glue in between the systems. And I think that actually makes it a not so daunting migration. And I think that might've worked out a bit well for you, right? Um, yeah, I would say that um, uh, logically uh, it was um, for sure a technology to implement. Uh, actually, the main issue was um, that the connector with Redshift, the, um, as it wasn't able to do a, a lot of pushdowns of the queries, some of the queries that uh, were actually quite fast on Redshift weren't so on um, using Presto, uh, Trino. Um, a Trino on the um, on, uh, using Trino. This has been uh, been improving uh, much. Uh, it's way better currently using Trino. Uh, it's one of the main reasons uh, you are actually doing a good job uh, and uh, improving the speed of the queries. Um, but yeah, this was just the main. Um, to, uh, to do what the thing that to glue everything together uh, together that was our first decision we have to be able to today we are going to use uh, at the time it was um, for real time it was uh, mysql database mariadb for live but we at the time we we knew that we were going to move on from there and we needed to be able to just add a new uh, database and Trino um, was the one that best solved this <laughs> but uh, actually, um, uh, as we were working around data mesh, um, data product was the main thing that moved us to, um, to make everything queryable uh, using a Trino and have the data um, accessible for the users. And uh, actually, Trino gives us the decentralized architecture. Uh, we can just add a new catalog. Um, and uh, this really increased our productivity. Actually, some months ago, I had to do a migration and from uh, MariaDB to SilaDB database, and it was actually just a renaming and run the tests. Uh, I'd say that blew my mind, something that would uh, take, uh, I'd say, a week maybe or more, uh, just took a renaming. That's awesome. But, uh, <laughs> That's a great part of the story, yeah. And and I so it sounds like for the most part, like Trino, the technology decisions were actually the only decisions that you made. And then data mesh just kind of came up and you you were already practically 
implementing a lot of what was being said there. And so that was kind of just a natural fit versus having you all having to sit down and make the decision, should we move to data mesh? You, you kind of just fell into the data mesh, essentially. Uh, yeah, um, that's basically it. Um, I was actually with some um, some some of uh, my colleagues, my friends, I was talking with them and presenting the data mesh. Uh, and just explaining how we were already doing many of the things that they were um, proposing on the, the data mesh, and they uh, we were we have been working with this for uh, I would say since 2018, 17, and um, the fact that uh, we have been working uh, uh, applying some of the principles of data mesh without actually knowing them. Uh, I think it just goes to show how a uh, data mesh can be something practical, um, pre uh, especially for the ones that are trying to uh, scale up the, um, the data, their data systems. Yeah. It, it's interesting because data mesh was actually practiced in a lot of companies before this was actually a, a topic. Google was one of the ones that were well known for doing this type of uh, this type of distributed uh, type of. Uh, management of these you know their data products and things like that we know google has just a million products under the sun and so they they manage it in a very similar way as well as like uh, a lot of other companies now it wasn't called data mesh when they were doing it but they had a lot of in-house stuff and that was the only way this was done and so um i think the really interesting part is that a lot of tools nowadays are making the mass adoption of this type of paradigm a lot simpler um, and it's just we're seeing different ways that that different companies like yourselves are are actually applying this so very cool uh you know to see this so uh, continue on i didn't mean to totally take us off a whole tangent but uh well i did but uh <laughs> but i i'm also just uh you know uh now interested to get back to the technology part uh, just wanted to see in terms of the political you know side of that and how you you moved your way into uh, that or if it just kind of naturally happened. It sounds like it's the latter. So. Um, yeah. Um, I would say that it was quite natural in terms of implementing Trino. I would say that after um, a migration from uh, our queries that everything, every data pipeline we were using a AWS data pipelines and we were using a SQL for this. Um, after an initial migration, we actually were able to use uh, things that uh, like JSON paths that we didn't have uh, uh, or um, uh, arrays for uh, from Trino, and this actually in improved our um, SQL queries. But um, yeah, uh, after this initial migration, um, it was. More uh, the difficult part would be the later on now to uh, now to implement uh, our data platform because uh, it was not to increase productivity. It was not enough to just say that uh, okay we have the event we need to um, uh, have some data pipelines and create the data sets. We were just a single team. So what was decided at the time was that uh, we need to move the ownership and that is one of the core things also of data mesh is to move the ownership of the data to the ones that are actually producing it. Um, what happened was that we decided to create um, a data platform. Uh, this can be a lot to take in, but uh, it's, not that, uh, it's not that many concepts. 
So what we decided was that okay, if, we if need you're to... if you're listening real quick, if you're listening in on this, uh, definitely check out the show notes. There's a, a data product dash data platform uh, image there to, to to look at. Go ahead, Jose. Sorry. No, no, no worries. Um, so what happened was that um, as we had the event, we needed to process everything and create the data sets, and we also needed to move the ownership of the data sets to the teams that were creating the ones that are responsible for the routing of the calls they were producing the events and what we were doing before was after every change we need to do some analysis we were going to talk with the data teams i think many teams work like this currently um, at other companies uh, but we decided that we needed to say to the teams okay you are the ones that are creating new events we need these to be materialized into um into a data set to which you are going to be um, the owner of it. And the, the, re the main reason for this is that we have a, a product. Uh, the clients will need to see these new data, the new products that you are creating. They need to be to access to this new data. So um, uh, an example would be uh, if I added, um, how should I say? Uh, if we added um, a feature for the clients to open um, a ticket, um, if they they needed and we needed to make sure that for every ticket that they opened, uh, a task was created for this, and this is a new feature, so we need to make sure that um, everything uh, is uh, being used, and or if not, uh, how many clients are using this new feature, and for this we needed what we we'll do was take this event. This event would be, um, uh, I'm going to take uh, some help from this, the image on the show notes. Uh, but in this case, the event will be processed by a Kafka processor, would be uh, uh, split into one major line uh, or what we call topic. Um, and in this case, we have a processor that uh, you have a broker. In this case, the processor will do the cleaning, the joins, uh, everything that we needed to clean up the data, make it um, all good and fine to be analyzed. And finally, we would materialize these into uh, our real-time databases. Um, after this, pro um, this process, the clients would be able to access this data, but only if the clients, uh, the, our products, uh, as soon as they created a new feature, they also add it to the data set. So it, it became really important to talk with the teams and say the data itself is a product, okay? It, uh, the fact that we have um, the, the users need to access their data and do their own analysis uh, makes it very important for each team to make sure that their, their own data sets are um, uh, as updated as possible. Uh, we can talk about uh, in terms of uh, how well this is taken by each team, but... Um, I'd say this is a work in progress and is uh, slowly um, um, working up from, uh, to each team on task desk. Um, and this gave us um, actually the, the things that were being done by the, um, mostly by uh, the analytics team that was taking a, a major part of our time is this part of the transformation of getting the new data, transforming it, and uh, materializing it. Um, 
some small changes could take a week, some uh, an hours, but I would say that uh, more than 80% of the time was uh, creating and maintaining these new data pipelines. Um, and this is actually very important because it's not enough to, um, and this is another concept from the data mesh, uh, that is a division uh, from the operation data and the analytics data. Because the, um, and the, the operational data is uh, transaction-based, is written so that uh, we can just uh, change a, a single row, while the analytics data needs to run a query for uh, multiple years. So it needs to have the data more denormalized uh, and needs to be optimized for read uh, operations. And this is the process that we try to uh, do on the data platform, moving the data for events to an uh, analytical plane. So, so uh, your live data, more or less, is going to be your operational data, right? That's is that like essentially it comes in through that that stream, and you get it updated in MariaDB, you get it updated in SysilaDB, and that's your kind of stateful data that that will is not really there for analytics. And on occasion, you're going to pull that data from SysilaDB into Trino, that little line there. That's basically taking a a, a snapshot of your live data and moving it into tree nodes so that it kind of moves into that analytical plane. Is that, am I reading that correctly? Uh, yes, I would say so. Um, it's more, uh, the real time data is already on, on an analytical format. Uh, it just that uh, real time data, um, it can't be, um, usually it's, uh, in our case, it's uh, 24 hours of data. Mm -hmm. um, the decision, the decisions as analysis that we do with this kind of data are more on the operational plane. It's okay. It can be for um, a manager to be able to understand if everything is uh, okay at the time, at the time, and not yeah. for a big analysis. So it's analytics, but different yeah. types. It's of like a, it's like a real time alerting or or trying to basically make you quickly aware of something versus like trying to understand the long term effects of you know this product or something. Yeah, uh, one of the one of the things that we saw, and uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's an issue, uh, but uh, it has become more visible to the clients uh, as they can see the data. When uh, um, some time ago uh, we got an issue with uh, AWS, uh, everything that we have is on AWS, so the clients were able to just go to their um, to to their dashboard um, and just see that everything was something uh, was occurring and uh, start creating tickets and uh, and creating issues with us because they actually were able to uh, uh, see that there was an issue with the um, with the system nice. uh, so yeah what we do is that um, in this case uh, after 48 hours uh, this is um, something that is uh, uh, can be adjusted and configured uh, we get this data and move it to um, I've uh, I've met a store data to S three to S buckets. Uh, we are actually working on moving this to Iceberg, so uh, nice. it's actually <laughs> great to see the new improvements uh, occurring. Um, and yeah, the, mostly the final step is that uh, we allow to query the data itself uh, using Trino or we use some. Um, APIs to query the data using a looker above Trino. Yeah. 
Um, so it could be an, a feature to add a recipe. I got to ask you, uh, what made you, what led you to make your uh, synchronous API hate called Hades? <laughs> uh, Sounds like an interesting name. <laughs> uh, I have to, I could explain uh, about uh, some, uh, some other systems, the air, white arms, the, some other like um, automatic backups. We use Kratos, but in the case of it, I'm not sure of the reasoning. Okay. I'm, aware that uh, internally we like to use a lot of uh, God's naming. Uh, okay. A lot of yeah, mythology I, happening. I was going to say, I was like, is it just because synchronous APIs are hell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. I, I, thought, I just thought that was so hilarious. And I, I did the extrapolation myself to understand why you named it Hades API. Um, and I also see spy in there a G, J, uh, sorry GDPR uh, API. So could you touch a little bit into what that's doing, and is that playing into some of that data uh, that data governance um, you know type of concept? I, I I see it's specifically targeting at cold storage. Again, I know that these architectures don't are not holistic and maybe are missing some of the you know nuance nuance here. So maybe it's not just talking to cold storage, but uh, I'm just curious what that what that little box is doing there. Uh, yeah, it's quite funny because uh, since um, today uh, I've um, done a new release that so uh, that we were able to also apply the GDPR to datasets like uh, MariaDB and Scylla. Mm -hmm. So since today this is quite uh, up to date is uh, the diagram that we have here, but uh, the thing that we have is that. Um, Multiple, uh, we have uh, multiple teams that uh, need to implement their um, um, the GDPR process and the delete the mm -hmm. data because in our case we try to divide into um, some types of uh, delete process or right to be forgotten that is um, yep. a delete delete an account because the account uh, went away and decides to delete data or forget an agent because it's no longer there. Yeah. Uh, and what we provided was a GDPR um, so that the clients, the, our internal user can just, uh, for their own data sets, this is important because the, uh, the ID is to be self-service. Yeah. Each team can, uh, we have this data set, this type of, um, this column is to be redacted because it has a phone number, for example, or the, uh, the address of the client. Yeah. What we do uh, actually do is after we get uh, a new GDPR request, we just run the process. It uh, retrieves the data catalog and runs the process for uh, the data catalog. And uh, in this way, we are compliant. So are you, is this, this is all home, internal homegrown stuff. It's, there's not much like uh, internal systems that you're using to accomplish this GDPR capability. Uh, yeah. At the, the time uh, we didn't see any uh, GDPR API. Uh, yeah. For the for this kind of requests, uh, it's basically a patch Spark uh, okay. that we use to delete to run the delete process. Okay. Uh, I actually had that question that if there was any um, open source product, it would be great to have something for this. Yeah. Kind of, 
uh, delete process, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it's all homegrown right now. Because this is one of those big things, big like uh, pieces of the puzzle. And the way you've exposed it is also very like, you know, one of those technology pieces that don't exist yet for, for data meshes is this, you know, GDPR, all the other compliance types uh, that you have out there, you know, having some simple out of the box type of solution for that. So I was, I was curious how if there was uh, something that you all knew that we didn't. <laughs> no. Cool. Very cool. But uh, uh, yeah, this is um, this is where the the data product, our data platform. This is the way that we built for the for each team to be able to have their own data set without having a their own data engineer at the team. Mm -hmm. um, the, the GDPR process, uh, API is one bonus um, as they just can run the set up the configuration and uh, we run the GDPR process for them. Uh, and actually this solves uh, some part of the decentralized ownership of the data that uh, is one of the main concepts of the data mesh. Mm -hmm. uh, and we also try to do a federated computational governance mm -hmm. um, this, uh, using this data platform for this. Um, but um, this is all great, but what happened is that um, the analytics team um, isn't the owner of the of the data pro the TD export that is our data product. Mm -hmm. What we were doing is um, just take advantage of all these, the data platform, ask the um, internal users to start running their uh, creating their data sets and as soon as they have the new uh, product to start uh, releasing the events and creating their own data sets. And um, what we did was using Trino, again, uh, to just get their own data. We still add Ratchet for some, um, uh, some other purposes and use, uh, still using Fivetran. And we decided to use um, Airflow to try and uh, run our own data pipelines. But at this time uh, that we decided to do the change from uh, AWS data pipelines to Airflow, we um, we started to see that we were repeating many queries. It was great to run everything on Trino because we could query everything, but we needed to do something more organized and DBT was, uh, I would say it's the major one uh, currently to um, implement data pipelines using SQL. Mm. If not using SQL, I would say something like Apache Spark or another things could be used, or right. even to stream uh, to create streaming processes, um, Flink uh, and uh, um, even Kafka as their own streaming solution for this. Uh, but in our case, we we wanted to do batch processing. Um, not a major reason, but uh, aside from the fact that uh, the, the analytics team is mostly built. Uh, with uh, data analysts and uh, SQL is main language. Yeah. Um, and in this way, uh, as we were already using Trino, yeah. as the same reason that uh, Trino was very natural for us to just adapt to our stack, DBT was another um, uh, another feature to add uh, to our um, to our stack and was actually quite natural to add. So, so I have to ask, did you find out about DBT via that episode on the Trino community broadcast or did you find out in a, um, some other channel? Uh, actually, um, 
I was actually uh, already aware of DBT. Okay. Um, I was trying to implement uh, DBT um, with um, using the, the adapter DBT Preston at the time, and uh, you just came up with the with that episode that uh, I started to watch at the same time. Nice. Uh, yeah, that's a quite, quite, quite game changer, right? Like maybe Prem can like detail it some more, but when we had that episode, we talked about it, the Presto adapter existed. And then Marius, one of our prior guests um, and like active committer, ended up like literally within hours ripping that over to be a Trino adapter. And then yeah. maybe Shemek, you can tell us more what happened then because a lot of things changed since then, right? Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, yeah, Marius did a great job. Uh, he did a fork of uh, DBT uh, Presto adapter and make all the adjustments to uh, to make it work with with Trino. And yeah, now it's uh, branded as a, a separate DBT Trino adapter, which is uh, quite awesome. That's it. And are we still? I mean, so I know that we we did the initial work to actually get that set up, right? But then, uh, is there? Are, I mean, I, I've heard. Murmurs, at least specifically from Marius, that there's more work to be done here, and uh, so I haven't been able to follow it super closely. Do you know anything else that uh, around like kind of the roadmap for uh, DBT, the DBT adapter, for DBT Trino adapter, I should say? Yeah, sure. Uh, I can share some details uh, about that. And uh, right now, uh, DBT Trino adapter supports uh, append incremental strategy. Uh, which is basically inserting uh, new records into the uh, target uh, table. And uh, once merge statement will be uh, available uh, within the Trino engine, we plan to add uh, also merge incremental strategy mm. to the DBT Trino adapter, which is, uh, which is awesome. Uh, another feature is, uh, is called uh, snapshot, which is uh, basically slowly changing dimension type two uh, implementation, uh, which uh, keeps uh, history of, uh, of given uh, record, given dimension, mm -hmm. uh, simply by uh, updating the old record and inserting a, a new record to, to, the, to the source uh, table, which is, uh, which is quite awesome. And uh, yeah, as a, as a last point, we were looking into uh, getting a certified DBT Trino adapter in the DBT cloud to uh, allow you use some uh, awesome features from, it, from DBT cloud. Will that be a Trino specific or is that gonna be um, uh, a Starburst? Uh, uh, so Starburst obviously, you know, is kind of like the enterprise version of Trino, but when you say Trino, do you mean Trino uh, in general or, or uh, specifically a Starburst adapter? or connect connector in the dbt cloud uh we will support both like trino oh, cool. and starburst yeah it's like uh, it's similar case like with the trino python client okay uh, got it it works it, with, it's all, with all, trino yeah. and starburst it's all open source and available for everyone as well so nice okay yeah so uh, i did yeah so nice little segue there jose uh finish up what you were going to tell about uh so how this then became dbt became central to your strategy at talk desk and what what this actually enabled for you all um yeah uh as you're saying the, there's still some features that uh, need to be added up um actually um those features are 
the main blockers for us not to implement this at uh, 100% because uh, it's been working great for us currently. Nice. Um, one of the things that uh, happened is that uh, using Airflow, we were just uh, building our um, our data set, uh, running our own SQL queries. We would uh, create some uh, tags. Uh, in this <clears throat> in this case, we would repeat many processes uh, multiple times. Uh, and this actually was error-prone. What we were seeing is that uh, we were re-implementing some of the features that dbt uh, gave us. Uh, one example that is on the show notes is um, uh, one of our processes that uh, would have uh, five steps. Uh, we would just implement everything in code, uh, re uh, reuse a lot of uh, code using macros. It's one of uh, the features of dbt to implement uh, dry code. Don't mm -hmm. repeat yourself, yeah. uh, which is something that I took for granted as a software engineer. Uh, and it was actually something great to, to have uh, again uh, when creating these uh, SQL data pipelines. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it uh, currently it has already simplified most pro uh, many of our processes. Uh, the addition of incremental mode uh, and everything that is on the pipeline is just going to um, uh, is something that is uh, in the future and we are really looking forward to implement, but. Currently, with uh, the data sets we uh, already have, we have seen a decrease of codes and uh, increase of quality. As with DBT, we can just uh, create a single query to get the data from um, from our own events or from uh, other data sets uh, and just uh, run the process hourly, daily, whenever we want and uh, move the data between data sets and just um, recreate the data set. It's funny how like a lot of these principles that, you know, exist in uh, software engineering that are, you know, things that we kind of put by the wayside initially when, when uh, you know, we, we moved into this whole sphere of big data and these new new uh, tools to just get the job done so we could scale up to, you know, terabytes of data. And now we're seeing them creep back in of like, don't repeat yourself, modularity, uh, testability, all of these kind of uh, things that, you know, come in with with tools like dbt and 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 things like that i'm, I'm really uh happy to see that this these have come back and you're also hearing terms like functional data engineering and things like that come come uh you know full circle to you know basically be the same principles we've had before but now we're applying them to what we what we've been doing the last 10 years in data engineering side so really cool uh no yes uh <clears throat> in terms of the for the data analysts it was something that um Something that I could point up is that, uh, firstly, the data pipelines would actually need to be uh, deployed by a data engineer. And currently, something that we have is that the data analysts or um, analytics engineer can just do their own queries, run yeah. their own tests, and just deploy this. Uh, it, it By implementing this, uh, DBTS actually brought up, uh, again, using Git and the branching uh, to, um, And this has been... a uh, an eye-opening, I would say, for the for the uh, for the software engineers, I would say they actually took it for granted. For data analysts, this uh, has been a major increase of uh, of life, of quality nice. of life. Um, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, uh, using this basically, we, uh, what we got, um, I was, wouldn't say that this is on the show notes, but. Um, um, 
one thing that we have uh, that uh, DBT provides us is that to have uh, the data and the code as a single unit. Mm. And uh, with DBT, uh, something that we get for granted that I would say it's not possible using other other adapter is that uh, while we could use DBT using Redshift, uh, using DBT on uh, on Trino, we can just get the data from different databases and we can move on from uh, uh, something that we are going to do um, in the next couple of months, that is move from Hive to Iceberg. And uh, this will just be a new adapter and um, we can do our own testing. And for the data analysts, they can just uh, create a point to a new catalog and just get uh, faster queries without uh, major migrations. Well, uh, Jose, it sounds like for the most part, you know, the the data mesh kind of seemed to be this natural uh, fit for your team. So I, I don't think that your experience is very similar to a lot of these, these other data engineers experience. And you show here the old way that your team was modeled was very much like you had a very simplistic, you know, split between your, BI slash data analyst folks, and then you had your data engineers. How did that uh, kind of grow into you know what you have today? It seems like you're you've grown your team, but you've also grown the uh, categorizations, and and it seems like that also has a, a, a an effect on the the kind of socio political forces within your your team. How how has that changed? Um, yeah. Um... Firstly, uh, we had uh, five, uh, six members, and uh, we had to also scale up. We tried to be as lean as possible, but uh, to implement uh, some, some things like the, our own data platform, we actually need to scale up a bit. Uh, and in this case, what, um, uh, what occurred was that uh, the data engineers moved to the data platform. Mm -hmm. uh, the main focus of data engineering is, on, is in the... Um, the standards, creating the standards and easing the development of new data sets. Mm -hmm. um, and the analytics team is the, using DBT and Airflow, it simplifies some of the things that we have. Uh, we could be using a DBT Cloud, for example, but in our case, uh, it was a decision, architecture decision because of some uh, specificities, specificities that we had. Um, but yeah, what happens is that the analytics team uh, now has mostly analytics engineers and um, uh, data analysts, and uh, some of the core features uh, and the data engineers are focusing on the data platform. Mm. Okay. Uh, and currently are around 40, 40 engineers. And and so who gets into that data governance box? Is that is that like uh, everybody or like who? Is there a particular set of engineers that fall into that box or is it kind of a, everybody is sharing those responsibilities? There's different hats. How does that work? Um, what occurs in here is that um, the main features uh, of how to process the data was moved to the data core. Mm -hmm. uh, for the, the analytics, just keeps working uh, with their analysis. Um, the data accessibility just tries to create the APIs and how to make it uh, everything accessible for the users. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, uh, for our first uh, data product, and the data governance is actually uh, the one with the biggest pipeline, with the yeah. biggest uh, things to implement. Uh, for because many features that we we need to implement uh, are very recent. In this case, we have started with the GDPR, 
GDPR yep. uh, we needed to have something that is easy to be used by um, everyone um, we also need to um, implement other things like uh, doing some data repairs yeah. uh, currently yeah by moving to iceberg it will ease up some of the processes that totally. we, currently, we need to do some data repairs um, but yeah, it's some uh, some of these. Are, we are going to we are working on adding data quality, um, uh, data quality feature. We are already doing some of these, mostly from the analytics side uh, using DBT tests. Um, but we, our plan is to try and have something uh, that can be used by the data platform, uh, mm. uh, so that. Uh, we can add uh, our uh, own data set and just run, uh, add some uh, data testing, like uh, we shouldn't have rules uh, and make sure that the business logic is there. For, uh, for data quality, make sure you reach out to me after the show. I have somebody to connect you with. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, cool. This sounds, I mean, this sounds really interesting where you're breaking up the engineering team to kind of handle different focuses, right? The data cores, like your traditional data platform. It doesn't seem though, and, and then you have two kind of newer teams and you're breaking out more and more teams to focus on uh, building up this, uh, you know, like uh, essentially this ideal uh, set of uh, data, data mesh. Um, I'm going to switch over to my screen and I'm actually going to uh, start uh, picking on Shemek here because he's been patiently uh, waiting and, and uh, uh, for me to start picking on him, I think. So um, so I, I'm kind of, Shemek, like uh, where, where we um, start to see, you know, data engineers getting distributed in different ways, we start to think about like, are they going to be distributed across these domains? Are they going to be distributed across like kind of uh, like uh, cross-cutting concerns, like uh, how, how it's been done in that talk desk with Jose. There's all this kind of uncertainty that comes around it. And I, I think that you had a couple ideas on like, you know, where, where you think, how you think the data mesh and this kind of new strategy is going to affect kind of everyday life of engineers. So uh, t tell us what you, how you envision this kind of uh, playing out for the day-to-day -day life of, of engineers. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, as, a, as a data engineer, uh, I think that, okay, uh, data mesh uh, may displace me or fire me from my current job, uh, but it's a, a wrong, wrong, uh, wrong thinking. And basically it's like uh, splitting responsibilities across different data products and uh, di different uh, data owners. So data engineers are split into separate uh, domains that they can uh, be expert uh, in uh, and focus like on the one data at, at the time not uh, not create bottlenecks like Jose was describing uh, and the whole like Jira backlog was like raising mm -hmm. uh, we can like focus on 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 a on a specific uh, specific uh, data uh, and uh, improve data quality, improve uh, processes, and uh, yeah, that's that's basically what 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 changes in a day day to day uh, data engineer life. What are your uh, thoughts actually on uh, though? Like H Jose, it seems like you all split it up based on kind of cross-cutting concerns. Is there is that possibly the step in between before you totally distribute data engineers? Is that like, you know, I'm wondering if, uh, if you know, because you're, you're not doing that today. You're, you don't have like a set of data engineers per product. 
And so that's the, I think the thought and the, the process, but you've actually split it based on like uh, functional areas of, of supporting the, the single, single uh, self-service platform. So uh, essentially you, you kind of now just said, okay, we need to focus on building this self-service platform. We don't have all the tools yet. So is, is, is that kind of the step in between the ideal world where we actually entirely distribute data engineers to own different types of domains? And I'll, I'll first go to you, Jose, and then I want to also hear your thoughts on this, Shemek. Uh, yeah, um, I would say that uh, for us, the role that we are taking is uh, for the data engineering just to be uh, responsible for the data platform and uh, making sure that everything is uh, going all right. But um, uh, yeah, I would say that's our main point. The idea would be for... Um, each team not be uh, not needing to understand uh, how Kafka um, uh, Kafka works and uh, just uh, maybe creating um, the joints between the data and uh, saying to uh, where it needs to go and uh, everything should uh, the resiliency the um, how the distributed architecture works uh, if everything when uh, it runs to the cold storage or says a dot storage I would say this needs to be um, abstracted away. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I would say that uh, as an engineer, we are trying to uh, kill our own job. Well, uh, and, and, but does that actually get to a point though, where like uh, data engineers, so if you do your job well enough, the you're not, you're killing the old job of having to manage the infrastructure and having to manage uh, how everything's pieced together. And then the new job becomes kind of what I think Shemek is, is trying to, uh, you know, or, or what the data mesh is kind of saying is that we distribute now the data engineers to focus more on the modeling and the actual tools, underlying tools and how the the product's being used. So is this kind of, is your uh, kind of set up with the, you know, supporting that uh, single self-service uh, infrastructure, is that kind of the in-between set before you get to, um, you know, kind of living on all these domains, or do you see yourself? Do you see your team eventually distributing out like that, or not? Um, uh, yeah, uh, I would say that um, this is after that. Um, I would say that using more terms, uh, the term of the DBT, the analytics engineer. This is more focused. The data engineer. Uh, there's an overlap, over, overlap there between the analytics engineer and the data engineer. Um, I try to focus the fact that uh, when we are creating our uh, models after this process by the data platform, this is more the, on the analytics side. Got it. Um, so yeah, I tried. To, uh, it's a as you said, but um, uh, we try to uh, bring the, this. Engineer looks like uh, we also I don't know if it's my internet or if it's is, is anybody else I can still uh he's dropped off a bit so okay well, Shemek, uh, so so now that we've kind of discussed that, uh, sorry, Jose, if I you didn't get to finish your thought, I we kind of lost you for a second there. Shemek, uh, do you think like what are your thoughts? I mean, do you feel like the 
there's going to be this intermediary step where we have to take to actually get to that long-term goal of maybe, you know, migrating from a data engineer into a into what I think Jose is also referring to this newer uh, job term called the analytics engineer. And that that's actually going to be analytics engineers sitting on all those teams that were, you know, data engineers in a past life. Is that kind of how, do you see that or, or do you have different opinion on that? Uh, yeah, sure. Like, uh, um, analysts and data engineer, um, may become like, a um, the same, uh, or, a, or a new, uh, um, job title, uh, in the future, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, but also it doesn't mean that, uh, data engineers like will die. It, 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 it there is also some data to be loaded somewhere. Yeah. Like uh, from the, uh, for example, from the sensors, uh, you need to load the data and store it somewhere, whether it will be a three or a different uh, object storage. There will be all, always data to load somewhere. It's not like the data engineer will uh, disappear. Uh, it's it's like more like a shift in a, in a, an approach uh, how to how we call it and how we operate in a in a new data mesh uh, paradigm. Okay. And, and so, uh, last little bit that, uh, you know, you, you kind of took some notes from this, uh, cool blog called, uh, the a software engineer's perspective on the data mesh. Could you just give, uh, I wanted to hear, you know, kind of the, the, uh, your, your understanding, um, and kind of the, another way of thinking about what a data mesh is, uh, if you wanted to kind of, uh, cover some of these pieces and see, you know, maybe, maybe for some of those folks that are still struggling on, what is a data mesh still? And, and what are we even talking about? Maybe this is the first time you've heard of a data mesh. Could you kind of give this, I, I, I like this comparison between microservices-based applications to what a data mesh is. Could you kind of uh, summarize like that that link there? Mm -hmm. uh, sure. So uh, yeah, some time ago, we uh, saw a, a shift from a monolithic application to microservices. And uh, we can compare, compare it right now to, to the shift from the centralized architectures like data warehouses and data lakes to decentralized architectures like uh, sql uh, query engine and uh, like data mesh uh, platform hmm. so uh, the the computing those uh, those services like in the microservices um, uh, uh, approach is like the, co the computing the data products in a data mesh. Hmm. So uh, basically, it's like a, a, from the data data engineer uh, and the engineer perspective, we can think of of it about like a shift from a monolithic type application to the uh, microservices. And for me, it it helps me a lot to understand it in in, in that way. And uh, lots of features that are. Um, more maybe not features that are cap capabilities uh, that are um, specific to uh, microservices can also be translated to data mesh capabilities. Hmm. Uh, and, and we have those, uh, those points here. Uh, for example, like uh, easy composition is, that means that data mesh needs to support uh, full ANSI SQL compatibility that everyone can use the lingua franca of, 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 of the data. So 
everyone knows SQL uh, in the data world, like data analysts, data engineers, uh, basically everyone. And what is also uh, more uh, important, and uh, this, this is a, a, a big similarity between microservices and a data mesh is that we also store some uh, things in the YAM files like uh, those um, dbt uh, dbt configurations mm -hmm. uh, and it's and it's and it's and it's basically a great thing you're talking about the discovery part like uh essentially having those uh those like um uh, on any microservice, you know, you're usually having like some sort of info or some sort of way that you can find out more information about the service, what version it is, things like that. In a similar way, you're saying like the discovery and being able to do that through SQL uh, using those information schema, you're, you're able to now find out, oh, this table is actually the, the correct table, the one that I want to use versus, uh, you know, some some maybe the five other tables that are named similarly or have a similar type of product that they're modeling. Uh, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so I, I like this analogy in a lot of ways because I think honestly this is where the term data mesh actually kind of uh, was was also motivated from. So it's it's a very easy analogy to draw, and it makes it a lot more concrete for for software engineers that are you know or data engineers that are like uh, getting inundated with this new buzzwordy kind of thing called the data mesh. It's it's a lot more practical and a pragmatic way of of viewing it. And so um, so thanks for for summarizing that. I, I think that. You know, it's going to be years, you know, before this gets mass adoption. Obviously, you know, TalkDesk and other other teams like, you know, Jose's are, are leading in the curve of, of these things. And it's always interesting to find out uh, how, how they get into that. And so for Jose, it seems like for you, it was actually a very natural fit. It happened just, you know, uh, you were already doing a lot of what was already being requested of you. And this just gave you a lot of a more formal uh, thing to point to versus having to write all of your own process around it. You can say, no, we're actually going to follow this thing that somebody already thought through and wrote out very elegantly and now is writing a book about it. Like now you have documentation around that process that you were doing before anyways, essentially is what it sounds like that, that happened to TalkDesk. Yeah, so. it was very natural for us. Very cool. So, so it's it's one of these things, you know. There's going to be a lot of pressure, or maybe with a buzzy kind of terms that comes around. We're in the hype cycle, and I think as as we start to people start to implement this, people start to see a lot of the great effects of of you know not having this one giant behemoth centralized uh, team and infrastructure that handles all the data across everything to do your to run your analytics. Um, it's, it, you'll, you'll notice that there are a lot of benefits to it. So, um, so thanks a lot for, uh, summarizing all of that. Um, you know, uh, Manfred, you've been pretty silent this whole time. Did you have anything <laughs> you wanted to say before we hop onto the PR of the week? Um, just, um, I think one thing that's important to understand is that, um, what it enables data mesh to some degree, similar to microservices, what it enables is it makes all the individual pieces smaller and yeah. easier to understand and manageable. And at the same time, um, the overall picture will be much more complex, but also much more powerful. So yeah. it, it, like you make a much more powerful system 
manageable and you break up the responsibilities amongst more people and that allows you to scale and i think that's awesome yeah and in the same way you know the same way that microservices wasn't the silver bullet there's also problems it's that now the silver bullet that, there, right? that now people bring up with microservices right we're going to have those same issues when you move to a data mesh it's not going to solve every single problem under the sun like a lot of the hype cycle likes you to believe but it is going to uh you know resolve a lot of these problems that we've dealt with for we as the data engineering community have dealt with for you know now probably oh, just over a decade, um, if not more. If you're looking back to the 1980s when we you know data warehouse was coined, so yeah. um, so it's also and the other, the other funny aspect is also it's a bit similar to how um, like DevOps came up or uh, Agile came up and like that kind of stuff yeah. where it's like it's not really new. It's yeah. just that new term that uh, assembles a whole bunch of proven ideas already and yeah. gives it a, a label so people can pull it pull it together and understand and, and work behind an idea. And I feel that that's kind of what's happening. So it's not that all of this is brand new. It's just a bunch of really good ideas that now are like already in practice, like from Jose and others. But now we have a label for it. And that's that's very useful as well. Yeah. Cool. Well, with that, let's move on to the PR of the week. All right. So this week's PR of the week uh, is called partitioning table test and fixed. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I guess that. I guess I was missing something on the uh, on the PR itself. Is that actually that I missed something when I copied that over? Nope. That's exactly what it's called. So I'm guessing. But what I'll tell you what that exactly means. Uh, this is the the wonderful beauty of of engineering. Uh, PR labeling sometimes. <laughs> um, so, so this is actually one of those uh, many fixes that came in on the uh, 364 release uh, for uh, for Iceberg. Um, this was a uh, uh, causing a query, uh, a pretty common query fail, not common, but query failure um, in the niche case that you were using UUIDs as the partition column, um, and so. This, I don't see this as being like a, a super heavy use case in a lot of ways, but I mean, for those that are, uh, let's say, partitioning by a customer, and maybe that's a UUID uh, in your in your world versus like a string or something like that, then in that in that case, you know, uh, if you partitioned on that, you would uh, be experiencing an error when when trying to um, to run a query from that. So. Uh, this PR uh, was was one of many that were brought in by Piotr Fendason. Uh and so I, you, you, if you go to 364, there's a huge list, and and a good chunk of those were from him. So I just wanted to really, with with Iceberg growing as well as you know, Jose just mentioning he's going to be adopting it soon. Like um, there's a whole lot of people that are making this migration into going from their Hive uh, setup to Iceberg. It's really exciting. I think it's the future, and I'm I'm really happy when uh, you know folks like Piotr uh, go ahead and and uh, you know really just fix up a whole bunch of of things in there. Um, we're focusing a lot focusing on it a lot internally in Starburst and trying to let, let a lot of those uh, you know fixes and optimizations uh, move over into the uh, Trino side as well. Um, and uh, we think that this is, you know, Iceberg is really going to be the future uh, data form or table format, not data format. Uh, we've already fixed that or solved that one. Um, <laughs> they, uh, with the table format of the future, uh, you know, it has a whole spec around it. There's a whole community around that, defining that spec. And now they actually have a company that that's uh, backing uh, that uh, called Tabular. Uh, it's, you know, uh, the CEO is the creator of Iceberg, uh, Ryan Blue, and he he spoke at Trino Summit. Should definitely uh, you know take a look at his talk and uh, different ways that Iceberg can can speed up a lot of your queries, 
it uh, you know it makes a lot of the tracking of of different types of data within your uh, data store and your S3 object stores a lot uh, better. And 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 it also just makes a lot of the um, you know how representation of the data in an object store, which is a file format that is built for the cloud, it makes that a lot better versus thinking of things as a file system like Hive does. And 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 it so there's a lot of optimizations and speed ups there that you don't have to like constantly be hitting the meta store a million times for every query that you're running uh, or multiple times in the same query. So um, so really excited about this connector. Really excited about uh, that table format in general. And uh, you know, thanks a lot, Piotr, for for uh, you know making all the uh, uh, um, fixes this uh, this um, uh, release. Anything from you, Manfred, on, on on that? I know that you've been tracking those as well. Yeah, no, we we are tracking it a lot because we I have updated the documentation and yep. also in the Starburst Enterprise uh, version, we do some more tests for that. So it's going to be fully supported very soon. So cool. Yeah, yeah, we're going to be trying to get some more enablement on that as well. Uh, hopefully, in the next uh, couple of months, to to train you up on how to how to migrate from Hive as well as how to uh, set up your own just from scratch uh, iceberg stuff and and do it the right way. So, yeah. um, anyways, looking forward to that. Now let's on move on to the question of the week. Right. So question of the week is, uh, what's the difference between location and external location when creating, uh, I, 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 I made it smaller in the actual question because I have to keep these questions rather small, but the actual context is when you're creating a hive table, uh, what's the difference between external location and location? And so, uh, this was answered on, uh, um, Slack originally. And then I uh, I did the job of uh, porting it over to uh, Trino Forum. Uh, for those that don't know, Trino Forum is uh, something I've set up to basically take a lot of the you know tribal knowledge that we have uh, all around, scattered around everywhere in Slack, and make it a lot more uh, condensed and searchable uh, in the uh, Trino Forum land. I also am recommending a lot of people uh, you know that uh, you know a lot of our um, people that are very active answering questions in the community to also move over to Trino forum to help out anybody that asks questions there as well. So, um, you know, definitely common questions uh, are starting to float their way into Trino forum. And, uh, hopefully this will be, um, you know, yet another, uh, avenue of approach to, to help uh, out, uh, the community and, and basically make them, uh, a lot more able to find these resources if they're not already on the Slack channel or they're not aware of how to search things. They can always search it in Google and land on that Trina form. So the the answer here is uh, from Arcadius. Um, let's say Shawakowski. Uh, if I if I were to just guess how to say that last name, I probably totally butchered it. But <laughs> Tchaikovsky, <laughs> um, I think. <laughs> Tchaikovsky. Dang it, <laughs> Manfred. <laughs> I'm just gonna have you start making the first pass. <laughs> um, so. Uh, Ta tables created with uh, location are, are what are called managed tables. So this is actually something that stems back from, from Hive. This isn't even a, a pure Trino concept. And so um, managed tables are essentially where um, you are... Um, you have full control over the data. You have uh, any metadata that is created uh, alongside the data that gets written um, basically are, are all tied together as though it's like one essentially like a database system, right? Um, if you delete the data from uh, the, let's say, you know, in, the, in, a, in a metadata sense, it's also going to delete the actual data stored 
on uh, on, the, on the actual HDFS system or, or object storage that you're using. Um, whereas external location, these are uh, you know basically something that let's say already exists. Uh, the data itself already exists somewhere else. Maybe Spark uh, wrote it in somewhere else, or or some other uh, you know you have some other uh, airflow process that's just dropping data into S3, and you want to be able to read that from S3. You're going to use external location in that instance uh, when creating a table on top of it. All external tables basically doing at that point is creating the metadata that it needs to understand and read those parquet files and the knowing that there's like, you know, this number of columns and things like that. So location, that's usually when you're creating the table from scratch using Trino and you want that to be managed. You want the, the metadata to essentially be tied to the storage. Whereas um, the external location is something that probably existed there before, or you want to just create, you could create something with an external location. And that way, if you delete the table in Trino and the metadata in Trino, that data still persists on the, on the uh, HDFS or, or object storage there. So that's, it's a, you know, small, small thing, but it's basically just changes some of the functionality when, when creating dropping tables. That's about it. Just to add to that a little bit, um, if you want to read more about that, uh, there is a, a larger section in the Trino Definitive Guidebook that explains this a bit more. Yeah. And uh, to to give people that don't know what we're talking about at all uh, <laughs> some context, this is when you run a create table statement in Trino and you have this with table properties and this external location and location are some of those uh, with properties, those table properties that you use within the with statement to basically provide some metadata to the query what to do with it. Yep. Cool, cool. Okay. Well, with all of that, uh, thank you so much uh, to our guests today, uh, Jose, uh, for joining and Shemek for joining. Uh, Jose, if uh, anybody wants to follow up with you, uh, how, can they, how can they find you to uh, ask you more questions about how they can set up a data mesh and do all these cool things with DBT and Trino? Mm -hmm. Um, you can uh, ping me on uh, Twitter or on the Trino Slack channel. Uh, I'm also on the okay. DBT Slack channel, so uh, you can do uh, on any of those. Awesome. awesome. And we have your uh, we have your uh, Twitter handle also uh, in the uh, show notes, so you can find that there. Uh, Shemek, how about you? Uh, any way, uh, do you want to get contacted or not? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> of course. No, uh, uh, well, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, I'm on a uh, Trino a Slack and also on a DBT Slack. So whatever is more convenient to you, just ping me there. Awesome. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for joining. And uh, we will see you all again. Now we are moving Trino Community Broadcast uh, to a month every month. And so we will uh, then be having this one uh, in this next one in December. Uh, look forward to that. And uh, uh, until next time, we'll see you later. Bye now. Yeah. Music for the show is from the Mega Man 6 gameplay album by Shishtaf Swabikowski. Don't forget to give us a star on the Trino repository at github.com forward slash trinodb forward slash trino. And for more information on future shows and to find show notes, check out trino.io forward slash broadcast.